A happy new year to all our listeners. The deadline for entries to the Theology Slam is fast approaching. Entries close just before midnight on Sunday, 5th of January. To enter, go to churchtimes.co.uk slash theology hyphen slam. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, go to churchtimes.co.uk slash new hyphen reader. On this week's podcast, Madeline Davies moderates a discussion between two leading theologians about faith formation in a secular age. Hi, I'm Nick Shepherd. I'm Programme Director for Setting God's People Free, which is an initiative in the Church of England to work out how do we help the whole people of God serve God's mission in God's world. Hi, I'm uh, Andrew Roots. My friends call me Andy, and I, I'm from the U.S., and I teach at a school called Luther Seminary. I'm uh, the professor of uh, youth and family ministry there, and uh, yeah, I've been working on uh, thinking about passing on faith in a, in a secular age quite a bit. Great. Um, so, Andy, you've written a, a series um, around ministry in a secular age. I've particularly enjoyed faith formation in a secular age. And I wondered if you can kind of sketch out the landscape which you talk about in those books, and particularly this phrase of social imaginary and how you think it's shifted. That would be really helpful. Yeah, well, um, these books, there's two of them that are out, uh, as you mentioned kindly, Faith Formation in a Secular Age, and then there's another one called The Pastor in a Secular Age, and A Third to Come. Um, They really are in dialogue with the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. So he's trying to really help us define what it actually means, and even more so what it feels like to live in a secular age. And he thinks a lot of the conversations around secularity and what it means to be living in the West um, now aren't quite right. Uh, that it's not that religion is necessarily disappearing. It's not that we're getting necessarily a, a bigger divide between what's public and what's private, though those things play in. But really, ultimately, what it means to be living in a secular age is to have all forms of belief contested. And he thinks that stretches really, really deep, that it stretches so deep that if you're a believer, you're often um, thrust into doubt. But he thinks even if you are a non-believer, that you can still be thrust into doubt. So if you believe and you're part of a church and uh, you really believe this, you can't help but once in a while go, uh-oh, is this really true or is this just the family I, I grew up in? If I would have grown up in India, would I believe the same thing? You can't help but ask those questions or just to say, well, maybe all religion is, is false pattern recognition and this is just an evolutionary trick. You can't really escape that. But he says it works on the other side. This is what makes Taylor so fascinating is he says if you're a doubter and you know you don't believe, like, you know, you've got this all figured out. You went through the Oxbridge system, and you know what this is. This is just a historical movement um, that happened throughout the Western world. Nevertheless, sometimes you even find your doubt shattered, or what he'll say, kind of crossed up or fragilized. And so you find yourself thinking, oh, no, no, there's no God here. And come on, this is all just made up stuff. And then you go to that Christmas concert and you hear that orchestra, or you hold your child for the first time. Um, You have an experience in everyday life that opens something up, and now even your doubt is shattered. So he thinks this is the kind of age we live in, that we're always mutually fragilized, whether we believe or we don't believe. And it's it's somewhere in this mix that we are either people of faith or maybe default don't be people of faith but that we it's really you really have a hard time not being someone who has either belief or unbelief fragilized at certain moments and certain times i wondered nick if you could talk a bit about whether that picture really resonates with you and is the one with which um you and your colleagues at church house are engaging so there's two things we'd say from 
setting odds people free uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a scheme of work. Uh, the first is that sometimes uh, we default into real self-criticism in the church, uh, that we've got to do more, uh, we've got to change, we've got to innovate, we've got to uh, respond to the times, and a lot of that is true in terms of being contextual. But what we miss in that is we miss that there's a deep cultural change that has been going on in the West for hundreds of years, um, and we're caught up in that change, and we're trying to live out our faith in conditions that have fundamentally changed. And I think Taylor explains that. There are some critiques of Taylor, particularly when you look at non-Western contexts, and particularly when you look at contexts where uh, immigration and other social groupings come in with different cultural perspectives. But by and large, I think he hits the nail on the head. So for setting us people free, I do this thing where I go through all of the reports that have attended to the issue of how do we help the laity, ordinary people live out their faith in everyday life. And the first key report of that is 1947. And then we have a whole range of reports in, in the 60s, in the 80s, in the early 2000s, and now. And so if something's coming back every 20 years, there's something deeper going on. And I think Taylor helps us understand that because the conditions for holding belief have changed. And we started off with this narrative of, and he explains this in his book, um, we start off this narrative of secularism as kind of sacred and secular being different spaces and thinking in the 60s that the sacred is going to disappear. That was the secularization thesis. And, and, and the church gets oppositional um, and, and becomes a kind of uh, a, di a, a different way of approaching life, a different way of doing politics, a different way of serving um, the common good. But as we move into later times, religion doesn't go away. Religion comes back in other forms. People are interested in spirituality. Uh, we get this, um, uh, this sense of uh, people being spiritual but not religious. Um, so something has gone on. And what Taylor hits is, uh, the nail on the head for me is, is that we all now hold faith under these conditions. So for a Christian, the conditions of doubt that Andy was talking about have a real deep impact on us. And how we understand where God is active in our lives becomes really difficult because the rest of our society doesn't support that or actually undermines that. Um, so you have certain spaces where you begin to feel God is active um, and then certain spaces where that's just closed off for you. Um, and so we talk a lot about confidence, but I think sometimes that word's slightly misplaced because I think it's actually more about the imagination. Mm -hmm. So it's about how do we help each of us to understand where God is present so that God is present in the Eucharist, God is present in charismatic song worship, but God is present at the chip shop and God is present in a conversation with a work colleague. Mm -hmm. um, so, and how do we help people uh, to see that in an age where that's not readily accessible. So for me, it helps It helps give us a kind of narrative um, that just puts a bit of a broader context on what Setting Us People Free is all about as a kind of initiative. Um, something I was thinking about is um, how much we look at statistics and sociological analysis. So the Church of England, for example, regularly will publish analysis of church attendance. Um, and outside the church, we look at surveys on affiliation, identity and belief. And sometimes they're said to create a real institutional anxiety. Um, so, for example, the Anglican Church of Canada recently published a report which put its zero member date at 2040. Um, so I wondered how both of you feel about these analyses. Um, do we sort of dismiss them at our peril or do they carry their own risks with them? What do we miss if we just focus on those numbers? So what I'll say is I think we dismiss them at our peril. However, 
um, we, we have to pay attention to them. They tell us part of the story. But one of the things I'm actually quite worried about, and maybe this is just me being based in the American context, how these, these uh, numbers get kind of turned, or how they, maybe a better way to say it, how they get mobilized um, and operationalized, is um, while they tell us something, it, it, what I'm concerned about is even the definition of what faith is has been given over to sociologists to define. And you can't blame sociologists, and I like sociologists. Some of my best friends are sociologists. Um, and but they need to create a kind of instrument that they can then empirically uh, make decisions on. So when they, when they try to define faith, they have to make it in such a way that they can actually measure it. And one of the things I'm trying to push in my own writing, and particularly the Faith Formation book, is to ask the question how much the imagination about faith has been taken over by certain sociological measures. Mm -hmm. um, again, for that kind of scientific work, you need that. But I think as people who are trying to be faithful to the depth of the gospel and God's action in the world, that, that faith is something quite deep and, and deeper and that can't just be measured by looking at the numbers of participation or looking at, you know, the four choices on a scale of, um, of what you kind of believe, like broadly, um, impractically kind of taken out of a, a certain context. So I just think especially as, as people who are ministers, um, either lay ministers or clergy within congregations and parishes, that we, we need to look at those numbers and wonder what they tell us. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure solving the problem is really the best rhetoric, but I don't know if there's a way forward if we give over the very definition of faith just to those measures. And I do think it builds certain levels of anxiety that don't necessarily need to be there. And I think we do forget that in whatever kind of flavor of Protestantism you are, at least for the earliest forms of Protestantism, faith was an incredibly deep category. And it wasn't just kind of what you believe and what you're willing to do with a few hours a week. And if you believe the Bible is philosophically this or that, faith was the place. It was kind of the locale where the divine and the human encountered, or when they, where the human spirit was in, encountered by um, the divine spirit. So particularly for Martin Luther, faith becomes an incredibly deep thing. And so um, even if we can't always get our arms around that, being just recognizing that it's deeper than that is... Uh, really important. So I want us to both be skeptical in a very in a very respectful way to those numbers. That that's part of the story, but that may not be the whole story and it is an initiative to push deeper. Yeah, and I think I would I would agree with that and it's it's really hard when you're trying to work out how to engage with people who are disaffiliating from church to not be anxious about those trends continuing. Um, but I think what those numbers show uh, and it's not just the last five years, the last 10 years. It's that story I've said for, mm -hmm. for hundreds of years. There's a couple of really interesting things. So the one, one interesting thing is that there's a strong argument that the church has always been a, a minority within a, within a broad, broader majority. Mm -hmm. So the active participation within church has never been you know, a total of the population. It's always been a smaller majority. Um, what we've lost is we've lost a bit of the cultural framing. It's called a social imaginary for for good reason. So our structures in society don't hold that imagination of what it means to be Christian, um, as they once did. Um, some people can malign that kind of Christendom model, but it actually had an impact, an effect. You know, it, it did something for you as a person. I think it had meaning for people. Um, so we've lost that. Um, and with that as well, that means that also um, attendance as an obligation 
has kind of moved out of people's patterns and practices. So we genuinely, and it's just in our context, I don't know how other churches respond, but we genuinely now consider people to be regular active participants in our church if they're there two, two times a month. Mm. Um, you know, but that's South London, so it's slightly different, but it's, there's other stuff going on. You're juggling and balancing things. Um, so I think the measures tell us something, but they also could be problematic. And if you just take a snapshot on a Sunday, um, then you just capture a snapshot. Um, if you widen it to average weekly attendance, you get a different picture, and to worshiping community, you get a different picture. Um, but it still only tells us part of the picture. Uh, so I think we need to pay attention to them, but actually understand, for me, they drive me to think through mm. how do we then enable people to live out faith in everyday life and to find and experience God in everyday life, and then to be part of a worshiping community where that becomes your story and your song and your conversation. Mm. For me, focusing on that is the way to beginning to imagine growth, mm. not just saying, oh, we must grow, we must grow. Mm. Because it's like exercise, isn't it? You, you can't say, well, I must get fitter. Mm. You know, it just starts saying, well, actually, what I must do is start eating healthily and running. Mm. And that's the way to get fitter. Um, so I think, I think we can get paralyzed sometimes by those numbers. They show us something, mm. but the response to that is, is to try to work out, well, what does it mean for us to be faithful? Right. And then that to return us to, to, to Taylor, I mean, one of the traps, I think, for people who are church professionals um, and people who look at those numbers and they mean something deeply existential, like, will we be able to keep posts? Mm. Will we be able to keep academic institutions that train these clergy open? Um, what, what he wants to tell us is those kind of declines is what, is what he calls secular, too. He has these kind of three levels of secular. And um, he thinks, yeah, for, for those of us who are in these institutions and, and get paychecks from them, this is a pretty big deal. And it does, it will change a lot of things and there'll be questions that we have to ask. But the way I would interpret him is uh, it can also kind of be a distraction to something that's deeper. Mm-hmm. And so what it ultimately means to live in a secular age is not just that the institutions of religion are declining, which they are, and that has ramifications on someone like me and someone like Nick, someone like the Church Times, like that has huge ramifications. And so we shouldn't be flipping about that. But that's not the essence of what it means to live in a secular age. It's this idea for him and that Nick's alluded to that transcendence becomes lost or harder to name. And I think to put that more distinctly theologically, maybe jargony, this idea of a living God, of this sense of divine action becomes harder for people to connect. And I think if we want renewal, um, the kind of renewal will start by trying to address what he calls these secular three questions, the loss of transcendence, the yearning for meaning, um, more than it will be just trying to get the numbers uh, to turn, the markets to turn back in our favor. And if I, on, the, on the stats, I mean, we did some work over the summer uh, with, with trying to understand some of our trends. And what we've noticed is that um, we know the population is aging in terms of the church population, but something interesting is going on in, the, in our regular attendance uh, in the youngest bracket, 25 to 44, 32% um, regular attendance compared to 14% regular attendance in 45s to 64-year-olds. So there's also something interesting in actually uh, the active participants, at least on that data, seem to be getting younger. Um, mm-hmm. So, there's, so there's, there are always these smaller narratives. I mean, I'm a qualitative researcher by background, so I like stories and I like the kind of texture of what's happening. But I think there are always these little countercurrents that are happening. There is a trend, undoubtedly, but there are countercurrents, mm-hmm. and there are different movements. And I think it's in these different movements where I think we can notice 
where God is active. And if, as a church, we can respond to that, then I'm, I'm hopeful that mm. we can, you know, mm. help people to find meaning and God active in their lives. Um, just kind of, um, I guess, a linking back to the conversation about divine action and transcendence. Um, there's a quote in your book where you say, um, our formation has often been boring because it has lacked the connection to our deepest embodied, lived and emotive experiences. And you also mentioned Luther's experience of being nearly struck by lightning. Um, and you question whether he would find anywhere today to make sense of that experience or whether he would turn to the church to make sense of it. Um, can you expand a bit on, on those ideas? Well, I think there's two things that would happen probably if Luther was walking in a field and was almost struck by lightning today. Um, one is he would run, he probably already did this, but he'd run to the pub and drink a bunch of Hefeweizen to try to make make sense of it. Um, and maybe he would join a, um, a kind of artisserie beer brewing club or something and, and find meaning there but more than likely and this is you know one of I think the big concerns that we have or one of the things that makes maybe transcendence or divine action seem impossible is that there really aren't a lot of zones or places to talk about it so I think people actually have these experiences but just the way human cognition works that if you don't actually tell the story of those experiences they have a hard time pressing in and leaving a mark on your own identity. So you can have really strange or really transcendent experiences, really interruptive experiences. But if you can just be like, well, the American young people say this all the time, like something weird happens and they say, well, that just happened. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think that's just a kind of funny, um, you know, um, kind of sitcom-y way to deal with reality, but in other ways I worry that it's a defaulting to, I don't really have to reflect on what just happened to me. Let's just call it weird and let's move on. I don't have time for it. And so I think that's part of the, part of the late modern condition is we do have odd, uncanny experiences. Mm. And if you can get people at a pub to kind of have a drink or two and start talking about weird things that have happened to them, and one person tells a story, all of a sudden three more people say, oh my gosh, something weird like that happened to me once when we were in the south of France and we almost got hit by a car. And yet, you know, it's like, there's no way we should we, we should have escaped that accident, but something was there. But they, there's almost nowhere in our culture where they can testify to those stories mm. or go to try to make sense of them. Mm. And for Luther, he could go to the monastery. It makes sense. I mean, part of it is he has this enchanted sense where he does make a deal with God. Like, if you help me survive this storm, I will give my life over to the monastery. That that will be, for him, there's still this kind of sense that that will be a good life still. Maybe the life I don't want, maybe the life my father doesn't want me to have, but it will still be a good life. And we don't really have that anymore with us where that feels kind of like a waste. But ultimately, we don't assume that the monastery... Um, or in Protestantism, we don't really have that. We don't really tend to see the local congregation as a place to come and say, I gotta tell you guys what happened to me last week. It's weird. I don't know what to make of it. Mm -hmm. And to even have a community go, yeah, we're not sure what to make of that too. We should pray about that. Or I, I had this weird experience. I know it was Jesus. And then to say, were you on cold medication? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, in some ways there's the doubting of the experience also is a very fertile way to get in touch with the experience and, and to help do the kind of discernment of this. But I just think we live in a world where obviously the lack of transcendence or this kind of heavy imminence just seems obvious. And it seems obvious because we don't have places to talk about it. Now you can take that from the other side too and say, see, religion is the ultimate error because as long if you keep talking about it, you'll keep believing it. 
but is that really a reduction or is it just that the way the human spirit is structured like we need to have these kind of narratives and these stories to know who we are and even to make sense of our world and i think we've defaulted on giving people space for that and that's we don't need huge budgets for that we just need the bravery of saying and the freedom to say come come and tell the story and not just everyone has a story and that's great and we pat each other on the back but to really ask the question to each other what does that mean if gus survived the car accident what does that mean about the structure of reality what does that mean about who god is for us what what does that mean maybe we'll won't know for a long time or maybe we'll make different interpretations but to me that becomes quite a beautiful thing it means that we're kind of i think what luther ultimately wanted kind of seeking for and what led him into the monastery to almost have his mm. mental breakdown was he 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 refused not to seek and seek for what this is and there is the openness in this kind of secular age to be the kind of seekers but we have to be in touch with our stories enough and i think we also have to resist resist jumping in and imposing a kind of narrative and understanding of those stories. Because I think, again, one of, one of the identifications of that we all live out our faith in the secular age um, is that um, it's fragile. Mm. Our, faith is, our faith is fragile. Um, and so I always tell the story, so my, one of my, I became a Christian um, because a girlfriend at the time got healed from meningitis. Um, and that was a really powerful kind of point, point in my time. And we didn't stay together. She got married and ended up being a missionary, and she died at 42, mm. um, leaving a husband and two kids. I, I still can't make sense of that story. Mm-hmm. And even just telling it now, that brings for me a kind of fragile moment of actually thinking, well, did that first thing really happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> did, was, I, was I just deluded into thinking that there was some experience? Um, and that's the, that's the state. So, so faith, I think this is your phrase. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Only, faith is weak. But actually, that's a great place to be yeah. because faith is trust. Right. Um, and so, we're, you know, so we're, we're trusting in God. And actually, I think we have to, the conditions of our churches, it's, it's not necessarily about the kind of certainty that, you know, I almost got struck by lightning and God saved me. It's, right. the, it's the place to go where you're safe to actually say, oh, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. You know, maybe that was God. Maybe, what do you think? And something profound is happening even right now. Because as you even in just, you defaulted a couple times and we don't really have time to get into that story, <laughs> right? But you got, there was enough of yeah. a narrative shape where, uh, you know, I mean, I've known you for a long time. So, but there's a certain way where your humanity is revealed to me mm. in a different way. And I feel kind of pulled in to your person. And all of a sudden, it starts to kind of tingle like there's something kind of transcendent here yeah. or there's something about divine action here as as persons share in each other so there's this yeah. I, I you know I'm, I'm embarrassed a little bit of the second half of this this yellow book because all of a sudden i start you know dropping very doctrinal words like hypostasis and kenosis but you take on the humble act of sharing the yeah. story and saying i don't know what to make of it and as i participate in that story i'm also pulled into your person we have a kind of hypostatic encounter of person sharing each other's lives and something starts to happen there's a certain interruption there's a certain there's a certain revealing of something and and that was just like 30 yeah. seconds and, and that's the kind of interactions that lie at the heart of what we're wanting to try and see happen with setting God's people free it's not a it's not a program to get people to do more and to just you know learn a rote way of talking about our faith it's a it's a way of actually trying to say to each other, it's okay to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay to share vulnerability. It's okay to uh, to ask questions of each other, but also it's okay to be 
positive about the ways in which you think God's at work in your life. But if we can be confident enough to engage in these conversations with each other, I think we will notice God's presence and we will begin to discover the kind of faith that will sustain us in a secular age mm-hmm. um, and the kind of faith that then we need to model and pass on to others mm-hmm. and, and you know kids yeah. and to share. I know that both of you have um, kind of a background and experience in youth work. Um, having just said that we sort of handle statistics with scepticism, um, many of the Church of, Church of England's churches um, don't have children um, in their worshipping community or very small numbers. Um, and I think we're starting to see a real push um, from Church House to address this partly through funding. Um, something that I thought was really interesting in your book, Andy, is that you talk about the glorification of youthfulness. Mm. And I think you've got a new piece of work out um, called Why Parents Don't Really Care About Youth Groups and What Youth Workers Should Do About It. And so I just wondered if you could share sort of some of your diagnosis about what's going on in the relationship between mm. churches and worshipping communities and, and younger age groups. It connects, I think, with what we've been what we've been talking about in um, kind of the, the the need to add adjectives in front of faith. So we think, oh my gosh, all young people are really leaving the church. So we need to we need to get a program that's with that can produce more consequential faith. And one of the things I wondered about that, kind of watching um, ministries in my country be obsessed with that, is uh, you know at the core, I'm ultimately a Bonhoeffer scholar, and so um, Bonhoeffer has these eight theses on youth work. But his first thesis is the one that's kind of just really inspired me where he says since the days of the youth movement and he's really talking about the German kind of youth movement that happened in the very early early days of the, of the 20th century but I think I, I impose that on like the late 1960s youth movement that happened in America which it has never left us you know people uh, political scientists will say it's every election in America since 1968 has been a referendum on 1968. And so this youth movement and the countercultural movement is is just never really left us. And contemporary um, modern youth ministry in many ways uh, is birthed out of fear of what the countercultural movement kind of how, how it functions. So Bonhoeffer's statement becomes incredibly prophetic because he says, since the days of the youth movement, the church has believed that the youthful spirit more than the Holy Spirit will save it. And so I put that together with another Taylor concept of living in this age of authenticity, where authenticity becomes the highest good, being unique, um, and living out of an ethic that says no other human being should tell another human being what it means for them to be human. You have to be your own unique self. And my fear is that Protestant youth ministry is actually mobilized as a way to capture the youthful spirit and that our congregations aren't as interested in young people as persons in hearing their stories and journeying with them, but they really like to have a good youth ministry in the church basement because then there's an aura of youthfulness to the church, and then then you can be assured that we're not really in that bad of a decline situation. And at least in America, like every product, every political party wants the 18 to 35-year-old market. And you think, why? I mean, people over 65 and more more uh, disposable income why don't why don't we market towards them well because 18 to 35 year olds has something else they have authenticity mm-hmm. and so if they're connected to your political party your political party's more authentic um, for good or for ill one could say that you know the, the momentum of the Obama um, campaign was that he really started to connect with young 20-somethings and that in that really propelled his election so I just worry about that with a church that we start glorifying the youthful spirit um, as opposed to turning and prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to move us and I really do believe theologically that if we do the Holy Spirit will always open us up to children 
um, youth, yes, but children too, because I think, again, following Bonhoeffer here, the eschatological form, the, the form that God is moving us into, the form even of discipleship is to be children and children of God. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I find this around the world when I talk where people will say, yeah, our problem is we don't have any children in our church. But it's only true if you have a certain anthropology, of a certain way of understanding a human being. If you understand human beings as just their associations and choices, then it's possible that no families with children have ever chosen your church. But if a human being is in some way bound in relationships, is a person who has their being in and through relationships, there's no such thing as a church that doesn't have children in it. Because there are, there are a 75-year-old woman who's got great-grandchildren yeah. that she cares about. That she wants a church to pray for, that she wants to tell those narratives to this church. There's, you know, there's the 45-year-old guy who's got a kid across the street who helps mow his lawn, or in my part of the world, shovel his driveway. Like, so there's no such thing as a congregation that doesn't have children. They may not have them coming every Sunday and they have this kind of Sunday school they had in 1972. But if we're talking about persons who have our being in and through relationships. And that's to me why children become so fundamental, because children remind us that we're not cut off individuals with associations, that we have our being in and through our distinct wills, but also through our connections to others. Um, And you can't can't disconnect those things. So every church has children in it. And it it is a failure of our theology to say, well, there are certain churches in the midst of our decline that have no children in it. The advice or the warning about the youthful spirit, I think, is a really important part of faith formation. And I think it bites in America a little bit more than it bites here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have noticed it here as well, that I think there is, it is seductive to think if we are, um, I'm tempted to use the phrase growing younger, because that's, you know, that, but that's used elsewhere, so I won't use that phrase, because that's an official phrase used by some dioceses. But it, but, but it, tell, it gives you that sense of energy in, in of its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that can be very seductive, and we have to be careful about that. But it is important that we do grow younger. Mm. Um, so uh, what we've been talking about in terms of the impact of, of the secular age, um, it's observable in uh, looking at David Vos's data about generational decline, mm. that the proximal impact of secularization, as he calls it, happens at the window between childhood and youth. So you, if you've grown up in a Christian home, a child in the church, you become aware that actually not everybody believes that. Um, and it has a big impact on you. So if we don't intervene in that well, uh, then we don't help young people, children and young people, negotiate what it means to hold faith into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So we actually do need to be active and engage with, with young people, but not because their presence is going to save us, but because we want them to be nurtured, mm-hmm. to have a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the Growing Faith uh, initiative that we're focusing on in the Church of England my hope is, and I believe it is the case, that it's it's avoiding that trap of, of the youthful spirit because it's actually talking about, um, the focus is about on we need to intervene in our work and engagement with children and young people in order for them to find and follow uh, God in everyday life. But we're all going to grow in faith as we engage with that mm. um, because it's about the ways in which children and young people form a part of our church and it's the ways in which we, we could be led into new ways of being you know, Christians mm-hmm. in a secular age. Yeah. And there are three things, if I remember rightly, three things that they say are important in their uh, uh, the education team at, in Church House. Uh, so they focus on the fact that encounter is central. Mm-hmm. So having an encounter with Jesus is central, an experiential understanding um, of who God is. Um, and we all need that, adults as well. 
you know. Um, so that's no different to, you know, that's not just for children and young people. Um, the second thing is that, and that's rooted in imaginative practices. So back to this idea of opening up uh, intergenerationally these imaginative practices, and again, it's about the whole community growing, children as well as as well as, um, as adults. Um, and then connected community is their kind of third thing, which is about the fact that children move between school and home and congregation and youth clubs, and actually the whole of that um, engagement is where God can be found and where their faith can be nurtured. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about getting children into Sunday services yeah, to put yeah. our numbers up, it's actually about finding a way in which we can help and hold children into a fulsome faith yeah. and grow together. Yeah. And I think it's I mean, very exciting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think, I mean, this is maybe too pious of a statement, but we, when you ask people, why do you need children in this church, or why do you need more, or why do you need any, it's often, well, because we'll be dead if we don't. And that's obviously true, but it would be a, it's a whole different kind of motivation if we need children in the church because we need to be prayed for by children. Mm-hmm. We need children to pray for us. And I'm always moved for you know all the uh, you know, different views we could have of, of, of Pope Francis, but when you see him meeting people who want him to pray for them, when he, what he will say back to them is, I need you to pray for me. Would you pray for me? So it would be a very different kind of thing to think, well, why do we need children? We need children here because we need them to pray for us. Um, no, I don't want that to be kind of seen as a magical thing, but it's very different than we need them here because, well, we in America, we might say, well, we've put a lot of money into this church and I don't want to see it go away. And, you know, um, you know, I, I, I donated for the wing of the church and now there's no kids in it. And I'm, I'm, I, sh- I knew I should have given it to the university or to the college football team instead mm-hmm. of giving it or to the political party instead of giving it here. And, I mean, that's a crass example, but um, so often it's, it's the fear of decline as, as, as opposed to having some kind of spiritual disposition. Um, and I think there is something really profound about Jesus taking the child and saying, unless you become like yeah. one of these. And it's today's reading as well. So we, yeah, it is. Chapel, wow, we are chapel, so good. Yeah, a chapel at lunchtime yeah, is the gospel reading. Let, let the little children come to me. So yes. I get Anglican points for that. Yeah, I was going to say, know. check that off. <laughs> um, Nick, I, I really like what you said about um, encounter. And I'm, I was reading a really interesting report by the charity Youthscape, who did some interviews with teenagers in a British town. Um, and one of their findings was, um, for many of the young people, whether or not God had revealed himself to them individually served as a lack of proof or a proof of God's existence. There was a clear link in the interviews between personal experience and proof of God's existence for the young people we surveyed. Um, so there was this kind of expectation that God should come to me. Um, and one guy said to them, I don't think that any God has shown up sort of to say, I'm here. And I thought that that was kind of quite tied to what both of you have been saying and some of what's in Andy's book. So I wondered what you what you made of, of that finding and that, that guy's quote. I think the base the basis of that is is true in terms of the experiential encounter. Uh, lies at the heart from from a lot of research that we've been doing in children and youth work, but also increasingly more so in adults. So the VOS data that I mentioned before, what's interesting in the most recent British Social Attitudes survey is we're starting to see decline in the 45 to 54 age bracket in their their ways, um, where we've never seen that before. And that's related to the same sort of thing, that sense of where is God? Where, where is my experience of God? Where does it really hit me in the base understanding of who I am? And I don't think it's necessarily a kind of blinding light type stuff. It's actually about that capacity to know in your bodily you know, being 
that God loves you and God is there for you and so I've had tangible experiences of that mm-hmm. so that you can't literally carry it with you in your in your inhabit in your body in your bodily understanding but the, the difficulty for me is that actually um, God sometimes hides God's self from us mm-hmm. so actually that there's sometimes in our life where we actually have to go searching yeah. for God there are sometimes in our lives when God comes to us unexpectedly uh, there are sometimes in our lives where we uh, we hear other people's stories and we think, oh, I wish I had that. And so I think for the for that particular young person, I guess if I was their youth worker, I'd say something like, well, maybe God's hiding from you. Maybe you're just not looking. Mm. I may not say that harshly, mm. um, but it's kind of like, who are we to expect God to you know roll out the red carpet and say, hey, hey here I am. But actually God's grace is, God is always a God of coming to us. The story of God's presence is always a God who comes to be with his people. Mm. He's always a God who uh, incarnates, a God who sends his spirit to be with us. The sending and coming of God is part of God's character. So I think it's a question of are we looking? Mm. Um, I think there's a question about um, do we notice and do we name that that might be God's activity in our life, which harks back to what we said before. So I think it's, fun- I think it's fundamental, but I think we have to be careful about it, it being prescriptive mm. so that we will own, you know, we get a culture generating that unless you've had a, an experience in worship, be it Eucharistic or sung worship, or a prayer time where you felt some sort of heavenly weight and, and choir coming, that's not what experience is about. Experience is about is it grounded and understood in your being? And that can come through very different means. It's interesting how we live in such an individualistic age that we think, well, if it hasn't happened to me, then it doesn't mean anything for me. And I just don't know if that's really the kind of, say, ecclesiology that Paul has, which is to say that you may not have had this really direct experience with with Jesus Christ, with Jesus, but someone in the community has. And it now becomes their job to retell that story. And in them telling that story, that can become an eventful experience of you having the encounter with Jesus. I mean, we even know from kind of neuroscience stuff that when we retell a story when we re-remember something we quite kind of in, in our synapses re-remember it and if you if you stand in front of groups of people and tell the same story over and over again which i hate to tell is what i spend most of my life doing um you start to realize that every event of telling the story embodies some kind of truth about the story but the event of telling the story and sharing the story with a new person or having someone else react to it becomes its own kind of fertile revelatory event there's other ways to think about paul's ecclesiology but in some sense that that's why we gather we gather for because people in this community have encountered the living jesus christ not everyone but that's okay because you take trust in the fact that it happened to these three people but we kind of live in a certain consumer meritocracy which says well it didn't happen to me it's not true well why didn't god love me enough to come to me like aren't i special enough to have that happen well this the christian faith is inextricably a communal reality so god faithfully will give these kind of narratives of the direct encounter with the living jesus christ to some people in this community their experience becomes our own so for me the you know the labeling of that for me is testimony yeah um and so we've kind of again developed this construct of a testimony as a kind of you know a clear story of why you should believe it becomes proclamational mm-hmm. um, or persuasion you know persuasion is the heart and I actually think that's 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 helpful um, and and gives people a good sense of why you might believe and the passion behind your beliefs but for me testimony is powerful in that actually it discloses God's presence mm-hmm. so when we talk about God being present in our life 
I genuinely believe that's part of that charismatic flow of, of, of God's presence coming in, in, in testimony and the preaching of the word and the interaction between the two. So the more testimony we get, the more sense of God's, God's being disclosed amongst us. Mm. Uh, not the easier it is to pray, but actually uh, easier it is to believe, but, that, but God, God is present. Mm. Um, and so that can be experiential. So when I've been in youth group situations and someone has been telling their testimony, you can, you can, you can feel the, the prickles because mm. you can sense that God is present in that, mm. in that story being told about God's presence. Mm. So I think the more we can share ordinary testimony with each other, and, and it's not triumphalistic testimony mm. either. It's also that story of struggle mm-hmm. and the sense of God being with us. And the story, of it, the testimony of maybe things still being in process. Yeah, exactly. You know, so you know, my joke when I, when I talk about this is, you know, some testimonies are like, you tell the story of Breaking Bad and then Walter White finds Jesus at the end and isn't everything great? I mean, and those are stories the church needs, those kind of, tri- those kind of stories of things being tied up. But we also need stories where things are still in process, which people are actually confessing and saying, I'm not sure if I even believe this anymore, but I'm still showing up. The other thing that's going on in that, in that quote as well for me is that um, experience doesn't change the nature of reality, in my view, but that's not, some people don't hold to that. So if you have a, a social constructivist view of reality, mm-hmm. if you've not had the experience, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the, one of the risks in, in experience being the foundation of faith yeah. is that if you've not had that experience, it can't possibly be true. So I kind of hear that. Yeah. Whereas actually one of the things I say uh, to young people uh, is, well, your experience or your view doesn't necessarily change reality. Mm-hmm. Um, in my view, it doesn't change reality. Um, so again, it's that, it's that holding of people to say, well, you may not have had that, that kind of experience, but that doesn't mean that God's not there. And I think that that's quite key because otherwise we can trip into uh, privileging a particular kind of experiential knowledge as being the marker of belief, whereas actually I think it's much it's much wider than that. So many of our listeners will be in some form of ministry that might be ordained, it might it might not be. Um, and Andy, towards the end of the book, you talk about your recommendations for ministering in a secular age. And I think you talk about what it's like to be ministered to and also whether that can be almost a gateway into something transcendent. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit about what you think that looks like for our listeners who are working in ministry in some form. Yeah. I mean, I think if I have any kind of actual novel theological contribution, it's to continue to push this idea that God, that God if we dare say God in God's own being is a minister. And the only God we can know is a God who comes to us. And uh, the God who comes to us comes to us for the sake of ministry. So I'm trying to continually play with this idea. And it's so hard because we have this kind of view of ministry as something clerical or something professionalized. But I'm really trying to think of ultimately ministry being a kind of divine reality. So that then means that you have to receive ministry as much as give ministry. And to me, that would really quite change things to say that even... um, in a professionalized way or um, ordained clergy, maybe your first response as you move into the world in that role is to be open to receiving ministry from others, um, receiving ministry from lay people, receiving ministry from people in your community. But there's a kind of a dynamic of gift here um, that's both giving and, and receiving. And I think there's something about the God of Israel that this, this God comes to minister, but also to participate and be given ministry, or what we might say more formally theologically is to be worshipped. Um, and then, so there's there's a kind of dynamic of giving and, and receiving. So I guess that would be the first thing that I would want to uh, kind of push forward is that ministry may be a much 
deeper kind of category than just some kind of functional activity. But it may be a way that we participate in God's action, which then, or maybe a way to say it is, it moves us into God's action that then takes us up to participate in God's being, um, to be to actually do ministry. So, I want I want to make ministry accessible to all sorts of people, but also at the same time make it quite a noble thing. And not noble because it's embedded necessarily in institutional structure, but noble because it's embedded in the very act and being of God. Um, and so I do think it's a, it's a correct response if we are someone who's been called into ministry, and this is where I really support Nick's work, I think all people have been called into ministry. And part of the job of those who are leading ministry is to continue to ask people to listen, a la Bonhoeffer again, for the living Jesus Christ calling them to follow, um, that all people have been called into ministry. But when we recognize that, the first response should be, uh, it should almost get, it, it should almost be r- rendered kind of overwhelmed with the dynamic beauty of that, that we have been called into to participate in that. And this becomes a very countercultural thing because we tend to think there's all sorts of human action that are much more powerful than ministry. Study the law, be a scientist, um, be a Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneur or innovator. Those are all forms of human action that are quite powerful. And I want to make an argument that actually maybe the strongest, the strongest form of human action we have in the universe is a very weak form, and that is ministry and to participate in ministry. Because only ministry, if we follow this God who comes to us incarnate, crucified, and resurrected, that only ministry participates in what is dead for the sake of making it alive. And it looks very weak. And it looks, it looks like sitting with someone who's crying and, and, and grieving the death of, of their father. That's a powerful thing. You know, like what, create a new app and have it change the way people use taxis. Like create Uber. That's power. But I think, yeah, that may change certain forms and behaviors. But to actually be pulled into participating in new life coming out of death is a, a, quite a profound reality and uh, so I want people to know that I wanted to render us very humble but also open up the horizon that there's something great that we're called into uh, because of the greatness of God's own being who is this minister who loves this world and comes into it and reveals God's self as the one who who wants to take what's dead in the world and bring it back to life um, I wanted to draw you in, Nick, because um, as was mentioned, it, it ties very well into your um, Setting God's People Free work, which is attempting kind of quite radical cultural change in the Church of England, um, particularly through sort of empowering the laity. Um, so I wondered how you relate that to sort of Andy's vision of, of ministry. There's, well, there's more than a couple of things, but a couple of things that come to mind is that um, I think that base vision that uh, God is active in our world around us and that the fundamental calling for all for all God's people uh, is it, how, how we engaged in connecting with God's activity in our world mm-hmm. so some would say how we you know how is how do we help the whole people of God to work out what it means to serve God's mission in God's world um, and that looks very different in different spaces um, and part of our problem is a, is a language problem uh, for me uh, which is well what do you what do you call minute what do you term as ministry um, and part of the issue in the church, as I understand it, is that ministry, ministry has become a contested term because it's been defining a certain set of functions. Mm. Um, and 
you know, is that lay ministry? Should lay ministry do this? Should, should, should ord- is that for ordained ministry? Is that lay, lay, pioneer ministry? We were talking with some colleagues this morning. Um, and those functions are often to do with the animating the life of the church, animating the life of God's people, which is vital. But the ministry or mission that the whole people of God are called to participating is way, way bigger than that. Um, so I would, I would be in agreement with Andy. I would extend the term. And I would be very happy with that. Now, for some people, they wouldn't want that because they'd want to keep the term ministry for a particular set of functions, not functions, callings and charisms in the church. And I I understand that and I appreciate that. But for me, it doesn't move the imagination. So I think it's interesting. So I was talking to some people the other month who were talking about workplace chaplaincy as their ministry. Um, And what the word chaplain had given them, they're not a formal chaplain, but they, they, they talk about their presence in their workplace, their office, in chaplaincy terms um, and what it's done is it's given them a language and a permission to work out what does it mean to engage in faith sharing conversations with colleagues so they've used a ministry motif to give them a sense of connection with other people I'm kind of like a chaplain well we may not have needed that 50 years ago because actually the 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 social construct allowed you to have, you know, to pray for someone maybe or to, to talk about going to church much more freely. Mm-hmm. So there's something in that language, you know, street pastors again, well, why, why do you have to be a street pastor to care for someone in a nightclub? Well, the answer is you don't, but the language sometimes gives permission. And I think what the language gives permission for is to see that as a place where God's spirit is active. And for me, I believe that God's spirit is the only source of transformation for individuals and for society. So to label that ministry, I quite, I'm very positive about. And so whenever we're drawn into something, so I talk about the Ministry of Reconciliation in one of the stories that we have in our Everyday Faith campaign in January. Um, and it's from a, from a police officer who is a armed protection officer um, at number 10, or was when the story was written. Um, and their challenge with thinking about what their vocation is. And, and um, of course, they're a police officer, so that's a, you know, that's a good vocation to be in, and it's done with integrity as a Christian. But the conversation led this person, Mike, uh, to, to recognize that he was always the person who brought colleagues back together after a bus stop, a very kind of, you know, pressured environment, a very kind of high adrenaline environment, lots of fallouts, lots of arguments. And he was always the person. And someone ventured to him and said, I think you've got a ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a peacemaker. Um, and that really resonated with him because I think that that, that gave a, a different understanding of how God is active, that, it, that God doesn't just call us as Christians to fulfill our roles with a particular, well, he does call us to fill them with a particular morality, but, you know, and a particular way of doing things in a particular manner that gives people a different sense of connecting with someone. But actually, it's much more than that. It's about, as a teacher, as a, as a, a police officer, as a, as a shopkeeper, you know, when I've encountered some shopkeepers in Sainsbury's recently, I've been wondering, I think you go to church. There's just something about the way that you're doing this. And I feel ministered to. Mm. And I feel ministered to, in my view, because God is present. Is that just fellowship? Koinonia? Probably. You could articulate it as that. But it moves the imagination to call it ministry. Because I think it gives both a permission and also a sense of empowerment mm. that we are engaged in an activity mm-hmm. um, where, where God is transforming us and other people.
Um, so just to draw things together, um, I guess I was thinking about a talk a few years ago and we were having some sometimes anxious conversations about the future of the church and um, the parish structure in particular. Um, and at one point, a woman in the audience um, expressed disappointment in her question that nobody so far had mentioned prayer or the Holy Spirit. Um, and I guess it's kind of been underpinning our whole conversation. But just to finish, I wondered if you could talk about where the Holy Spirit fits into what we've been talking about. I think everything we've been saying underscores that the ongoing activity of God in our lives and in our world is, is, is foundational to everything we've talked about and unconditional that however much as a church we struggle with our patterns and practices, the reality of God as the creator and sustainer of holding all things together and actually working all things to renewal is, for me, it's foundational. It's the core essence of, of what the Christian faith is is, is, is all about. Um, I think sometimes, well, certainly in my, my work, sometimes I probably take that for granted and don't articulate it well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's but it's it, it's it's fundamental. I mean, I'm part of the renewal and reform team, um, and that's often seen as being a change program in the church or the kind of you know a managerial kind of program, um, and it is in its reform bit. But fundamentally, it's about renewal. It's about the fact that you know, in order to be a transformed church, that will only happen if we open ourselves up vulnerably to God's Spirit to transform us as individuals, as communities to engage with others where God is already active and present. So uh, it's, 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 found, it's foundational, um, and, it's, and it's being caught up in this movement of God's activity that I think um, is, is core and key to us working out what it means to hold faith and express faith much more clearly. Yeah, I think at the core of this, and I think Nick and I have really pointed to this um, together, is that it is this sense of listening to the living Jesus Christ calls to follow. Uh, but to hear that voice, you have to have this kind of triune sense of the Holy Spirit um, opening our ears to hear this continued living, resurrected Christ calling us um, further into the world, further um, in into ministry. So the work of the Spirit is to continue to minister to the world and to continue to call us into that and to continue to, to follow God deeply into that. And um, I mean, it's interesting that your question also, you know, really touched on prayer. And in these times of, I guess, just social media movement, politics, it just feels like you got to do, 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 do something, do something, do something. And maybe there's a kind of countercultural, but quite beautiful move that, uh, the church and our ministries become about prayer and teaching people to pray. And I think there's a deep longing for people to be taught to pray. And to take us full circle, as we talked about a secular age, I think one of the things that happens for the pastor, um, the clergy person, but maybe um, all ministers, is that you kind of have this deep sense that your own identity becomes lost in the midst of this. Like, what are you actually for? And it seems like a very, again, maybe pietistic statement or simplistic statement, but to think that your identity may be to teach people to pray is a really profound thing because there's nowhere else in the world that they'll learn to pray. And um, prayer is the opening up to the Holy Spirit to reveal the living Christ amongst us um, who is continuing to move the world um, into the, the very life-giving um, gift of, of the Father. Um, so there's, I think there's a beautiful movement within that. And our participation in it isn't maybe necessarily to build great structures or come up with the, 
most popular podcast there is, but we hope this one's popular. Um, but it is to teach people to pray and to pray ourselves. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.